You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What is up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt coming to you from the jungle of Costa Rica. And I wanted to give you a quick little announcement about what's going on over at Under 30 Experiences, our travel company for young people, ages 21 to 35. We have been going all over the world for the last seven years, as you probably know if you're already a listener. They've been our only sponsor for this podcast exclusively and I want to leak a little bit of information for you. We have a new trip to none other than a Southeast Asian location, Vietnam and Cambodia. So if you are interested, go ahead and sign up for the list over on under30experiences.com because we are going to be launching this trip with a discount. We are even going to do a trailblazer trip. So the people who are the guinea pigs, the very first trip, try out all the kinks, are going to get $200 off that trip. So if you were interested in that trip or anywhere else that we might happen to go on under 30 experiences, I would love to hear from you personally. Of course, you can always message me on Instagram at TV. That would be great. Or just go on over to under30experiences.com, sign up for the list, and we will send you an email, let you know that is coming out this week. So it's going to be an awesome, awesome time. Those are two countries that I am yet to visit, which is very exciting because I have been almost to almost every single other country that Under 30 Experiences goes to. So pretty cool, guys. Sit back, relax for a really nice episode with Dr. Leo Gallant. Someone who is just, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting guy. Get ready to hear this one. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today I'm here with Dr. Leo Galland. He is a graduate of Harvard University and NYU School of Medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine, focused on integrative and functional medicine, and the author of several books, uh, some of which Wikipedia tells me are, well, let's say he's been writing books almost as long as I've been alive, uh, but two of the most recent ones, one that helped me out quite a bit, The Allergy Solution, The Surprising Hidden Truth About Why You're Sick and How to Get Well, and more recently, already here, A Doctor Discovers the Truth About Heaven. Dr. Gallen, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be talking with you today, Mike. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, So I wanted to, well, really kind of dive in and we can frame the conversation for the audience that I'd like to ask you some questions, of course, about nutrition and and actionable things that people can do to start improving their everyday lives uh, and then get into your book already here, which is really interesting. and, And in my opinion, as you start to take care of some of at least in my experience, I should say, as you begin to take care of your physical body, other things start to to open up uh, within yourself. At least that's how it's been in my case. So I'm excited to to chat with you kind of in that progression. How does that sound? Great. Great. That's fine. Excellent. So I wanted to first ask you, I've read a lot that you are someone who people come to when 
other forms of traditional Western medicine are not working or doctors don't know what to really do and shrug uh, patients out of their office and say, I don't know, go find someone else who, who might be able to fix this. So it sounds like you're quite a problem solver. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story on how you fell into that niche. Well, you know, I trained at uh, NYU Bellevue Medical Center, which was is among the best places for learning clinical medicine in this country. And what I realized once I got out of the hospital environment and started teaching was the results were not as good as I thought they should be. And because I'm a perfectionist and I'm always trying to do better and get better results, I realized that there were aspects of why people got sick and what they needed to do to heal that I hadn't been trained in, that I needed to learn more about. And so going back to the early 1980s, uh, late 1970s, I began to educate myself in nutrition, environmental health, behavioral medicine, and behavioral science. And I started incorporating information from those disciplines into medical practice. The first thing that really amazed me when I started on this journey was there was a tremendous amount of scientific knowledge in those areas. And almost none of it had crossed over into the practice of medicine. And the second thing that was so, that really amazed me was how much more effective I became as a physician. The kinds of results that I was able to help patients achieve by adding these things into my practice was just so much greater than using the tools that I'd been trained with. And so I never looked back. For the past 35 years, I have focused my practice and my teaching and writing on trying to integrate these aspects of health and well-being into medical care. So what's been very gratifying, actually, is that the rest of the medical community has slowly come over to see that. That doesn't mean that medical education or training has changed or that there's enough emphasis on it, but it clearly has one respect and a place for itself. And it just makes sense. It's as if you were trying to repair a house and you ignore the foundation of the house. I mean, this is the foundation. And if there are cracks in it, then it doesn't matter what you do to the upper stories. Sure. Yeah, you can call a a plumber to check on your, uh, you know, that could be the equivalent of your gastroenterologist. But if the whole house <laughs> is going to hell in a, in a handbag, yeah, right. it might be because of the plumbing in some way. But it seems to me that there is really a, a bigger picture at stake, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that I discovered as I went down this road was that the gut actually plays a really vital role in this whole process, more than just the role of another organ, you know, like the heart or the lungs, because um, so much of what we take in goes through the gut. And the intestines are the home to 100 trillion bacteria, 10 times as many 
bacterial cells as there are human cells in your body and a thousand times more bacterial genes than human genes. And those bacterial genes are designed to modify the expression of your own genes. And so over the past, say, 30 years, I guess, out of that 35, an important part of what I've done has been to look at what is now called a microbiome. That is the this community or these various communities of bacteria in the gut and the way that they impact on health and the way they interact with nutrition. Okay. And the gut is everywhere these days. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like uh, you can't walk down the street in New York or, or in <laughs> any city without bumping into a, a yoga studio, right? But you see everything about gluten-free and you see the gut put on all of this packaging. And I think it's commonly misunderstood for a lot of people. Would you mind taking us on a ride, maybe straight down the esophagus and- A, a tour through the gut, sure. Sure, that would be great because there's parts that where bacteria grows in your microbiome and then where it's not supposed to grow and different things that are, are secreted. It's very interesting to hear the details. Sure. I mean, one of the concepts that I think is important is that there are two gradients in the gut. And one gradient is the nutrient gradient. That is, you eat food. There's a lot of food. The food comes in through your mouth. The process goes down the esophagus. The process of digestion starts in the stomach but is really carried through in the small intestine. And the small intestine is about 30 feet long. And it has a surface area, if you were to unfold it and smooth it out, that's the size of a double tennis court. And the, the reason that there's such an extensive surface area is to absorb nutrients and to educate the immune system, which starts in the lining of the small intestine and travels throughout the body and then returns there. Um, the immune cells do that. They kind of act as students and teachers, uh, itinerant students and teachers. So that's where most of the nutrients are. The other half of the gradient, the other side, are the bacteria. And the bacteria are mostly in the large intestine, the colon, 95% of them are there. You have a bunch in your mouth, some in the, in the um, esophagus. The high level of acidity in the stomach kills off almost all of them. And then as you travel down the small intestine through the 30 feet, the levels of bacteria slowly increase. But it's only when you pop through the final valve and you come into the large intestine, you're really exposed to huge numbers of bacteria. So part of the function of the bacteria is to keep the food away from the bugs. Because if the bugs and food get together, they have a party, the bugs have a party. And an example of this is most common probably is lactose intolerance. People who are not able to digest milk sugar, that the milk sugar is not digested in the small intestine, reaches the large intestine, and you get cramps and bloating and all sorts of nasty symptoms. But there are many other reasons why that might happen. Okay. I wanted to actually back up for a second and ask you about 
what happens in the mouth and your salivary glands and chewing, because I've heard functional uh, doctors say that the digestion actually starts in your mouth. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Starch digestion starts in the mouth. Okay. There's an enzyme called amylase that comes out of your out of your salivary glands. So you start the digestion of starch in your mouth. And you also begin the process of changing the physical form of the food because surface area is very important for these uh, digestive processes. If you have a glob of food, doesn't matter what enzymes you have, they're not going to be able to get access to it. So the chewing carefully is really important for improving digestion. Okay. So you mentioned if you are lactose intolerant, that you will not break down that lactose, that milk, cheese, whatever it is, and it ends up in your large intestine and that creates havoc down there. Now, I am someone who's mother is lactose intolerant, my brother is lactose intolerant, and my dad is from Wisconsin. So what did I eat all growing up were these processed cheese sticks and two big glasses of milk with every single meal. And I ended up with also as a teenager with acne all over my back and chest and and face. And I assume that that would have been because of something that I believe you've studied quite a lot that might have been leaky gut. And once I quit dairy, that almost all went away. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, I think you are. One of the things that happens with lactose intolerance is that there's so much irritation produced that the colon especially starts to become leaky because that's where most of the irritants are. And when that happens, you can then start to develop immune reactions and allergies to the food. So there is an association between having lactose intolerance and then developing allergy to the protein that's in milk. And the lactose intolerance itself probably didn't create your acne. It was an immune response, an inflammatory reaction that occurred as a result of that. Interesting. And I found, especially when I had a lot of dairy, that my congestion, my uh, chronic sinus infections, it felt like I was, you know, hay fever and mold were, would really irritate me all of the time. Uh, it is, and this, would you say, is all connected? Oh, yeah, it's definitely connected. You can think about allergies as like water in a rain barrel. If you have a rain barrel that is full, then the water will spill out. So for in your case, having all that those dairy products and being allergic to it would fill up your rain barrel and you'd start to experience allergic reactions that were symptomatic to other things like maybe pollen or mold. Once you empty that rain barrel, you can fill it up with environmental substances without necessarily getting sick. Okay. And and I want to get to allergies here in a minute, but I do want to make sure everybody gets their money worth on the gut here so people can can experiment with not eating dairy. One other thing that I found was when I did a 23andMe genetic test, it told me that I actually was more likely to be lactose intolerant because of genes on both sides. And that is when I really 
decided, okay, no, no more bulletproof coffee with all the butter. And because that helped my brain turn on and function well, but it did not do anything, any favors for my skin. But what else can people do to optimize their gut bacteria or their, their microbiome? The first is to be aware of the things that really screw it up. Antibiotics or um, drugs that suppress stomach acid, really important. You know, there's so many people that experience, that have heartburn and will go popping drugs like omeprazole, Prilosec or Zantac. And the chronic use of those drugs really messes up the bacteria growing in the gut increases your susceptibility to different kinds of infection from food and water. They're among the most overused drugs in the Western world and drugs whose danger is most underappreciated. In fact, I mean, because they increase the risk of pneumonia, osteoporosis and fractures. They do a whole bunch of things that are very undesirable in your body. So one of the campaigns, I've had a lot of campaigns over the years. One of them has been to develop protocols for helping people get off of acid-suppressing drugs. And because acid-suppressing drugs don't really treat the problem. If you have heartburn, it's not because you have too much acid. It's because you have probably normal amounts of acid that have gotten into the wrong place. It's the reflux into the esophagus, which is not equipped to handle acid that causes the heartburn. So there are a number of steps you can take to tighten the valve at the lower end of the esophagus to improve its emptying. And uh, these are much safer than suppressing acid. I mean, I can go into the details, but the protocol is about 95% effective in helping people who are dependent upon acid suppressing drugs get off them. Now, so, but I was responding, that was a long answer to a question that is going to have a lot of long answers because there are so many things that can screw up the microbes in your gut. So we've got drugs, acid-suppressing drugs and antibiotics being number one. Uh, then there's diet. And there are a lot of studies on this. The most interesting, actually, uh, was a fast food study. And there's a one-person study that was done by a scientist in England, he paid his son to do it. He paid his son to eat all his meals for a week at McDonald's. And the kid was a college student. And at first, all his friends said, oh, wow, isn't that cool? You get to eat out every day, three meals a day, and your dad's paying for it. And um, by the end of the week, he felt really crummy. But in terms of his gut, if you think about the gut as an ecological system, then what's important in ecological systems is diversity, biodiversity. That is a really key part of maintaining the health of your gut. And within a week of eating fast food, three meals a day, he had decimated the biodiversity. It was like clear cutting a forest or something. And it's the loss of biodiversity in the gut as a result of a kind of modern Western diet high in fat and sugar, overeating that leads to inflammation that starts in the gut, can impact the whole body. Your skin was one example of gut inflammation impacting the body. So 
diet has a major impact. So what's the kind of diet that's best? It's a varied diet, first of all, not eating the same thing all the time. High in vegetables and fruits, high in fiber, high in healthy fats like the omega-3 fats, not the unhealthy fats. Now, whether you should have whole grains or not is going to be a very individual issue because there is simply not one diet that's right for everybody. And I think that in order to be really healthy, you have to be you have to observe yourself. You have to know your body, become your own personal scientist without getting obsessive about it. If there are foods that cause symptoms, recognize that. See what happens if you avoid those foods. See if there are substitutes for them. The foods that tend to be most problematic are, number one, sugar and foods that have added sugar. Number two would probably be wheat and dairy, uh, sometimes corn and soy. In my book, The Allergy Solution, I have a protocol to help people work out what the diet what diet is best for them. Now, it's written from the perspective of food allergy, but it's a gut-oriented diet. And the approach that I take to allergies in the allergy solution pays a lot of attention to the role of, of digestive function and gut bacteria and detoxification and promoting allergy. Okay, great. And uh, just one more question on the, the gut. There's so much now about probiotics and prebiotics uh, and all of the things you can take and eat, which in my opinion have sometimes hurt the, yeah. uh, you know, I had to, to go on a little bit of a, a FODMAPS diet because I just had too much prebiotic stuff going right into my large intestines and I would be bloated and have gas and for forever. And it took me being a scientist with my own body and figuring what, I, what was best for me, but what could you offer uh, on those two? Right. So first of all, just getting to the FODMAPS issue. FODMAPS foods are foods that lead to fermentation in the gut. And that varies from person to person. And the key concept there is something called fructose malabsorption, which is pretty much parallel to the lactose intolerance with dairy products. Human beings have a limited ability to absorb fructose and the polymers of fructose, which are called fructans. And they're found widely in a lot of fruits and vegetables and some grains, uh, wheat, for example. And whatever you can't absorb in the way of fructose and fructans uh, goes down to your large intestine. And again, there's a party and you get gas and bloating and pain and diarrhea or constipation, and it can be pretty miserable if you pass your threshold. The only way you're going to know what your threshold is, because it varies from person to person, is if you start to experience any of those symptoms, pay attention to it and cut back on the foods. And there's a lot of data on FODMAPs diets, low FODMAPs diets on the internet. That's a concept that dietary concept that started in Australia and has traveled very widely throughout the English-speaking world. And it helps a lot of people with those symptoms. Not everybody, though. Now, what's the role of probiotics and prebiotics? Okay, so first of all, probiotics are living bacteria that theoretically repopulate your gut. Not everybody benefits from probiotics 
And one of the things you have to understand is there are, are a thousand species of bacteria in your gut. The probiotic species that are available are at most a dozen and often less. And this is not like taking something that you know is going to have a particular effect. This is introducing living organisms into a community of living organisms where they, their impact is kind of unpredictable and they may or may not be accepted. They may or may not change that community. They may start a war rather than progress. And there was a recent study that got a lot of attention that uh, people were given antibiotics and half of them were given probiotics and half weren't. The people that got the probiotics had a harder time reestablishing a healthy population in their gut. Now, the antibiotic they got was amoxicillin. So that is probably true for amoxicillin, an antibiotic that has relatively little effect on gut bacteria to begin with. It may be totally different if you're taking doxycycline or flagyl or some other antibiotic. One of the things about science that is really under-identified is that scientific truth is in the details. And you change one detail in an experiment, you may totally change the outcome of that experiment. And so what the press does is it generalizes from scientific studies and often skips the important details. Two things. One, I think it's important to ask if people go, you know, people come down with this uh, sinus infection or, you know, they feel like, oh, geez, I'm going to be out of work a week. Uh, you know, I have, I have something. Go see the doctor. The doctor prescribes antibiotics. What do you tell these people who don't want to damage themselves? Well, a lot depends on the nature of the antibiotic they're being given, how often they ta have had to take antibiotics, what the duration is, what kind of shape their gut is in to begin with, and what their previous experience with probiotics has been. I actually see a lot of patients who with gut problems that are better when they take antibiotics. And that gives me some information about what's going on in their guts. There are a lot of people who have an overgrowth of undesirable organisms that are kind of dominating the scene and bullying all the other organisms. And the antibiotic puts the bully in its place. And so then maybe we need a different strategy. The bottom line is one size does not fit all here. And I don't routinely put everyone on probiotics. And the same is true for prebiotics. Now, prebiotics are special foods that enhance the growth of bacteria in the gut. And the whole idea is to enhance the growth of beneficial bacteria. But all prebiotics don't do the same thing. And so I try to target the prebiotics to meet the needs of the specific individual. And again, I don't put everybody on prebiotics. And gas and bloating due to overgrowth of bacteria that are fermenters is a pretty common side effect of overdosing on prebiotics. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so appreciative that you want to, people to take things on a case-by-case -case basis. And I, of course, give examples from my own experiences and things that I've, I've read or heard are common. And so, of course, I'm biased in 
that way. So if I go to a doctor or most likely if I come down with something, I'm just going to wait it out for a week to 10 days. If that happens to be the case, that's not fun. Nobody wants to do that. There's capitalism going on and people want to, you know, want to get back out there and make money, but go ahead. Well, first of all, for a lot of the infections that people receive antibiotics for, uh, there's good research indicating that the antibiotics are overused and they don't help viral infections. So for colds, even for acute sinusitis brought on by a cold, in someone who's not prone to recurrent sinusitis, the evidence suggests that if you need antibiotics, three days is enough, and that the antibiotics actually may not really shorten the duration of symptoms if you check the person out a week or two weeks later. So there is a tendency to jump on antibiotics too frequently. And that's not only bad for the good bacteria in the body, it's bad from the perspective of resistance because you start culturing out your body or your environment to select for resistant bacteria that are not killed by these antibiotics. And that's a huge problem in medicine is the, is the overgrowth and the, the widespread increase in antibiotic-resistant bacteria. On the other hand, there are a whole bunch of herbal products that are very helpful for those acute respiratory infections, even sinus infections. And some of these have antiviral effects, some have immune-stimulating effects, some have effects on the lining of your respiratory tract to heal it, and uh, some are antimicrobial. Oregano oil, for example, is one of the best natural treatments for, for sinusitis that I've found. And that was one of the things that drove me into exploring alternative and complementary approaches. I saw that the tools that I had been trained with often didn't work very well and often were being used inappropriately. And so I started looking for other tools with which to help people. And there's the natural pharmacy has a lot of those. That's great. And uh, Dr. Gallant, before we move on from the gut, a topic which we could probably talk about for, I'm sure you could talk about it for hours and hours. I wanted to ask you if you could explore quickly the connection between the gut and the brain and specifically how that can affect people's happiness. Well, yeah, the that is a really important area. It's gotten a lot of attention lately as it deserves to. The gut has been called a second brain because there are so many nerves there. The number of nerves in the gut's nervous system is greater than you have in the spinal column. Wow. Uh, for In the spinal cord, for example. I mean, there are a huge number of nerves and they communicate directly with the brain. And the bacteria in the gut can speak to the brain through the nervous system, and the brain speaks to them. And I published a review article that looked at all the ways in which the microbiome, the gut bacteria, impact on brain function. And there are multiple ways. Probably the most intriguing, well, there are two kinds of intriguing things. Uh, it can do it through the immune system and inflammation, but it can, it can do it chemically. So 98% of the chemicals that circulate in your blood, if you were to draw blood and analyze it, there'd be thousands of substances there. 98% of them originate with the bacteria in your gut. 
That is, if you didn't have any bacteria in your gut, you would have only a tiny fraction of those chemicals circulating. And some of them go directly to the brain and can impact directly on brain function. Some of them can be very toxic, actually. And so there are loads of studies of brain toxicity that originates in the gut, producing various psychiatric and neurologic symptoms. There can be subtler effects as well. And because some of these substances may not produce what is recognized as a brain disease, but just either um, subtly influence the way that the brain functions. I mean, a study in China found that uh, elevated levels of ammonia were associated with criminal behavior, for example, and aggressiveness. Wow. An interesting thing to pursue further. Uh, but also, there are bacteria that directly or indirectly of impact on the neurotransmitters in your brain. So one of the more fascinating studies was with people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And the researchers compared a group of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder with a group of people with similar kinds of trauma who did not develop PTSD. And they found two major differences in gut bacteria, two species. Well, actually they looked at it at a broader level, but there are two types of bacteria were deficient. One is pretty well known, the bifidobacteria were much lower. And the other is a type of bacterium, it's not well known, called acromancia. Well, it turns out that one of the things that acromancia does is it, it has a Valium-like effect in your brain. That is, it, it stimulates in certain parts of the brain. When it's growing in your gut, it stimulates the same kinds of receptors that Valium and other tranquilizers stimulate. And so the question becomes, is the lack of this activity in the brain the reason that a person with a certain amount of trauma is more likely to go on to be able to not extinguish the trauma, but relive it through PTSD? We're just at the entrance to this research. Uh, it's right on the cusp of it. But there's a tremendous amount uh, that's going to come out. And there are probiotics that have been shown in controlled studies to decrease anxiety or depression in humans. I could talk about this field forever. And uh, I love some of the studies in mice and rats that have been done in this area. Um, but we'll save that for another time. All right. Well, well thank you for elaborating on that. And Dr. Gallant, I, I wanted to kind of point out the bigger picture or point out that you in particular as someone who thinks in an integrative manner you see the bigger picture and you realize as your you gave the example of the house and you spoken about the environment which was a huge part of your book the allergy solution and just when you look at the world today and you see how not to get political, but people really think on a very micro level and they say things like, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example quick. I saw a distant relative or not so distant relative uh, who posted about saving the whales. This distant relative happens to support Trump and EPA and the, EP, the dissolution of the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, I, I couldn't help 
myself but ask on Facebook, don't you just see the bigger picture here that we're we're spiting ourselves? And uh, again, not to get political here, but the environment. I mean, you just mentioned you just mentioned ammonia in your book. You you talk about how we're no longer living in a natural environment and the effects that that has on humans, and that we are really we're part of a large larger ecosystem or a universe at that. But people people can't quite wrap their heads around that yet. But I was wondering if you could help shed some light on how people can see the bigger picture, that it's not just about your gut, that it is about the bigger picture. Right. Well, the thing about the gut microbiome and the microbiome studies in general that I think is so important is it changes the whole way. In order to really understand it, it changes the way that you think about your body and your health. Your body is a series of ecosystems, and these are part of a larger series of ecosystems that make up our world. Everything is connected, and that doesn't mean we understand all the connections, but we need to be aware of it. And look, I don't object to bringing politics into this because the big problem with politics is the misrepresentation of reality that happens when things are filtered through politics uh, and through political viewpoints. Um, and I mean, that's something we could talk about all day also. Um, so how do, you, how do you change the way that you think or that you understand things gradually, sort of one step at a time? Start by thinking about your relationships with other people how what you do impacts them, how what they do impacts you, how the things that you take and put into your body affect the way that you feel. I mean, start to build that kind of awareness. Sure. I mean, I think that's fantastic advice. And to know that those, even those little bacteria inside your body or your even your mitochondria, the ancient, ancient cells, that is part of a much, much larger picture. They are hosts inside your body as planet Earth. Right. The planet Earth is a host to us. And they play a role. I think they play a role in the evolution of the human species. So I'm going to tell you that mouse and rat story. It's pretty quick, but it's pretty fascinating. They've done studies with, they have these animals that are raised in a germ-free environment. They have no bacteria that they can measure in their bodies and because they're born through a sterile process, they're raised in these sterile environments, and they've studied their behavior. And so germ-free, they call them germ-free. The germ-free mice, they put them in an, what's called an open field activity box. And they just look at how do they behave there in this open box. And regular mice are very timid. Not surprising, timid as a mouse. is, is a, That's a phrase that we recognize that is that's mouse-like behavior. The germ-free mice are not timid. They explore and they get away from the walls. And so some scientists said, well, it's a sign that they're less anxious and less stressed. That didn't make sense to me. And actually, if you look at them biochemically, they're much more stressed, but they don't behave like mice. If you take rats, germ-free rats, it's exactly the opposite. The germ, regular rats are pretty aggressive in the box. They explore all over. And we recognize this about rats, 
I mean, rats are a pretty aggressive species of rodent, much different from mice. You take germ-free rats, they behave like mice. Wow. And yeah, they're much more fearful and less likely to explore. And so those two behaviors that is are really important for survival in the wild, where an animal has to balance the search for food with staying away from predators. And I think that example gives you an idea of how in order to be a mouse and live as a mouse, you need the mouse microbiome. In order to be a rat, you need the rat microbiome. And having those is essential to the survival of the species in the wild because those behaviors that are characteristic of each species is essential, has to be well-balanced for survival in the wild. So what are the human behaviors that are essential for our survival? I would say that cooperation and problem solving. And at least in the area of problem solving, there is a study with a specific type group of probiotics showing that it improves problem solving skills. So our microbiomes are probably essential for our survival. And, and definitely cooperation and problem solving are the two most important attributes that humans need. It's what we've always needed. More than ever, we need that now. Cooperation and problem solving. Yeah, non problem solving without war. Yes. War is the failure of problem solving. It's about the worst decision that a human being can make. It's a sign of desperation. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, a, a whole other topic. Yes. Of course. Um, but, uh, Dr. Gallant, I, I wanted to ask you, as you began to see the bigger picture, and as I alluded to in the beginning, as I took a really deep exploration into my own body, as well as my psyche and how my psychology worked and started practicing things like meditation and yoga and really started living a more examined life, I found all of this to be a much more spiritual practice than I had anticipated. And, you know, I my parents never really brought me to church and that really never particularly resonated with me anyhow. And I just kind of went on my own uh, exploration and started to see the much bigger picture in all aspects of life that that honestly the people around me were not seeing as you just uh, really touched on. And so I'm curious, you have your own story of this, and this is the topic of your newest book. So Dr. Gallen, I was wondering if you could explain that to us a little bit. Sure, absolutely. And in a way it's I mean, the book is very different from anything that I've ever written or talked about publicly, and it's very personal. But in a way, it is, as I think you're pointing out, a, a continuation of, I mean, if you really look at yourself and the world from an ecological perspective, it leads you to look at, to a spiritual understanding. And if you think you're spiritual, but you ignore the ecological, I think you're fooling yourself. Um, as a lot of religious people do. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the experience that ultimately totally changed my understanding of the universe at a very deep level 
relates to the death of my son at the age of 22 and some extraordinary experiences that happened at the time of and after his death. Uh, my son Christopher was brain damaged uh, shortly after birth. He grew up as a special needs child who was very challenging to other people and very challenging to himself, paradoxical in so many ways, very loving, full of humor and poetry and clumsiness and awkwardness and attention-getting behavior and could drive anyone crazy within a few minutes and knew how to push all the right buttons. Um, and I describe him, actually, the description of what he was like in, in my book, Already Here, is very vivid. Christopher was, uh, after he finished his education, was living on a farm in the Berkshire Mountains. I'm in New York City, so he was 150 miles away and had gone for a, a short hike with some other people who were living there. It was a special community for people with special needs. And I received a phone call in my office from an emergency room at the, uh, in a nearby hospital in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. They had found Christopher in a stream bed. Uh, he had drowned. They were resuscitating him. He had drowned in about two inches of water. He had a seizure disorder. And what I think happened was he had separated from the group, had a seizure, tumbled down an embankment and drowned in this minimum amount of water. It was early November. His body was very cold because the water was near freezing. And so I asked them to warm him up before declaring that the resuscitation had failed. And my wife came over. We were sitting in my office waiting for word of the outcome. And it's a horrible experience because you have no control over what's happening. It's going to totally change your life, probably for the worse, not for the better. And you can't do anything. So you sit there powerless. There's nothing to say. You can barely breathe. You can barely move. The air itself felt heavy. All of a sudden, there was this electrical feeling that came into the room, as if there was, we were near high voltage wires. It was as if lightning were about to strike. And Christina, my wife, and I both stood up at the same time because we both felt it. And the room filled with this intense, bright light. Now, we weren't seeing it with our eyes. It was, we were seeing it with our minds. It was as if there wasn't a room anymore. We were in this place with this brilliant light and the source of the light was Christopher. We recognized the being as Christopher, um, but it didn't look exactly like Christopher. There were no arms or legs. It was a kind of an oblong shape with his face at the apex and it was rising up as if it were a rocket. What was so remarkable about it was the incredible, blissful joy that emanated from it and the tremendous power. I mean, it was like some kind of controlled explosion that destroyed nothing. It was breathtaking and it lasted for a few seconds and then it was gone. And of course, it felt so amazing that you wanted to be there. It was, wait, you know, I want to go with you. You know, don't go away. Um, you would want to feel that forever. Um, but it was gone and the phone was ringing and we knew what we would hear on the other end. It was the emergency room doc. And he said, look, we've warmed him up. There's no activity in his heart. 
And so we said, of course, yeah, thank you. We knew that he was dead. And it was pretty clear to us. We had just seen a spirit that was his spirit that had come to us. And it was like, wow. I always knew he was amazing. Just never realized how amazing. And then the next thought was, is there a being like that inside of me and everyone else? And Chris's eventual statement about that was yes. Yeah. So that was the first episode. And Christina and I had exactly the same experience. We were still really grief stricken by the loss of Christopher. It's kind of crazy how you can see this thing that is so miraculous. And yet in your day to day life, you were still devastated. If that were the only thing that had happened, I would probably eventually have decided, well, that was a very intense experience, probably a shared hallucination. My wife and I are very close. And, you know, I mean, was that like reality or was that just the intensity of of our experience? Well, a few days later, something even more astonishing happened. We buried, decided to bury Chris in the Berkshires because he had been so important to this community that he was part of. And at his graveside, we released 22 yellow helium balloons as a kind of tribute to his 22 years on Earth. I had to cut the balloons free from a sandbag. So each of them had a yellow ribbon attached to it that was maybe 12 inches long. The next day, we returned to New York. And as we were driving down Broadway and approaching Columbus Circle, there was heavy traffic. The car stopped at a red light. A yellow balloon descended from the sky, hovered right in front of the car, and then drifted away. Well, my first first thought was, wow, isn't that a coincidence? We just released yellow balloons yesterday. Then I realized that this balloon looked like it was about a day old. This was not some balloon coming out of Central Park. And anyway, it was a cold, cloudy day in Central Park. No kids were buying balloons there. That would have been rising up. This was dropping down. It looked about a day old. It was attached to a short length of yellow ribbon that clearly someone had cut because these balloons come with two to three feet of of ribbon, not 12 inches. And there were five people in the car. Everybody saw that balloon. I mean, there was no doubt about it. Wow. It was there. And so that really blew me away. Everybody else had no difficulty, especially the kids, accepting, oh, yeah, Chris sent that balloon. To me, it was like... um, wow, how did that happen? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I figured, yeah, it was physically possible that a balloon that we released in Great Barrington could 24 hours later descend on Columbus Circle, but that it happened as we were passing through Columbus Circle and that Columbus Circle has had a special significance for Chris because it was named after another Christopher. So we used to joke about that. I mean, that was a pretty amazing experience. And I had to As a scientist, I have to say, I can't just dismiss this and say, well, I mean, look, we can't replicate that. We can't ever do it again experimentally. I had to think about what does that tell me? And it told me that maybe death is not the end of existence or even the end of one's ability to impact in our world. Now, I eventually came to an explanation of this that's actually 
that's quite consistent with quantum cosmology. That took me a number of years. In the meantime, not much happened for several years. And then, and I didn't have any more interactions with Chris. About five years later, I did have an interaction, was flying from New York to LA to give a lecture. I've done that trip many times, but this was the only time that the plane actually flew directly over the Grand Canyon, which is amazing to see from 35,000 feet. It's like the earth splits open. <laughs> it seems to explode. Wow, I bet. Yeah, it, it's just a celebration of the earth. Before Chris died, I had been planning a trip to the Grand Canyon with him. And his last words on the phone to my wife were, I can't wait to go on that trip. I didn't think about it at the time, but as I was passing over the Grand Canyon and just marveling at how amazing it looked, I felt as if I was outside the plane. Chris was with me and this, this same sense of joy, blissful joy that I had seen in my office at the moment of his death returned. Didn't last long. It felt like, wow, Chris has somehow come back. Well, a few weeks after that, I was awakened during the night with his voice telling me, you have to tell my story. People need to know. And so I set about to write this book, which eventually became already here. And I wrote it over a period of about a year. And during that time, I had a number of conversations with Chris's spirit. They would occur basically in a situation where I was always alone. I wasn't distracted by anything else. I was always focused on the moment. And I might put out a question to Christopher. Um, and it might even be kind of a lighthearted question. I wasn't even sure I would get a serious response. I would always get a response. And it was way more of a response than I ever expected. And it would go on longer and it would start to explain things to me about the nature of reality. And as I wrote down these explanations, I realized that this was kind of like, it was an induction for me, an initiation, because he started with things that were, that I felt were easy for me to understand and quite sympathetic to my way of thinking about the world and gradually moved to a whole different understanding of the nature of the universe. I mean, I've always been interested in the meaning of life. I, who isn't? But I never expected to get answers. It always seemed to me that there would be way more questions than answers and that we were never intended to know. What Christopher explained to me, I never expected to have explained to me. But when it was all finished and when the book was finished, I realized that this actually makes a lot of sense and feels very complete to me. I don't know if it will to everybody, although many people have found that Christopher's revel revelations have been quite meaningful to them. Well, Dr. Galland, I, I first want to say thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing with the world and following that, uh, that call to spread what you feel is so important to, to share. Uh, so, so thank you for that. And of course, my my deepest condolences about your son, but I'm I'm so thrilled uh, that you're able to to share these things with other people who, hopefully, these experiences 
can resonate with them and open them up to perhaps deeper experiences in in their own life. So thank you for for that. And I guess before I let you go, it seems crazy uh, that we've already hit the the hour and I find this stuff far more fascinating than than anything about uh, nutrition or or the gut or all the other fabulous things we've we've talked about today. But I'm curious what advice you can offer for people who want to be more outspoken on topics that they really believe in, that they feel that need to be shared and that they feel a calling to do so because I'm sure you've taken some scrutiny for this guy who's extremely scientific uh, going down this this rabbit hole, if you will. Have the courage to respect your passion and follow it. Because of the political discussion that we had earlier, just reminded of what William Butler Yeats said about 100 years ago at the time of the Irish Revolution. And it went something like this. The worst are filled with passionate intensity. The best, I don't remember exactly how he expressed it, but it was the best are afraid to make commitments. You are the best. Allow yourself to be filled with passionate intensity. Don't let the other side do it. Excellent advice. We really appreciate that. I know you are you're busy there in New York, so I do want to be uh, respectful of your, your time and let you go. I want to read off the titles uh, of your books really quickly for everyone and then give you a, a chance to let everyone know where they can connect with you. Of course, uh, the book that I mentioned helped me out quite a lot, The Allergy Solution, The Surprising Hidden Truth About Why You're Sick and How to Get Well, and the more recently released book, Already Here, A Doctor Discovers the Truth About Heaven. I can't wait to read it myself. And uh, Dr. Gallen, where can people reach out to you and find out more about your work? Well, I have a website. It's Dr. Gallen, D-R-G-A-L-L-A-N-D.com. And that's probably the best first place to start. Great. Sounds good. Well, we're looking forward to to reading more. And uh, yeah, thank you again, Dr. Gallen. Okay. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. I really enjoyed talking with you today. You are very welcome. <laughs> 